Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Frank Sabatella is a writer, director, and photographer who's made such films as Blood Knight, The Legend of Mary Hatchet, and most recently, 2019's The Shed. One of the things I really appreciated about The Shed was how it explored some pretty serious subject matter. Themes of bullying, school shootings, and child abuse were all confronted in this movie without it being heavy-handed. Horror as a genre has always been pivotal in confronting difficult subject matter head-on. And in addition to delivering a fresh take on vampires, The Shed dives into some very serious subject matter, all while having a very fun vibe to it, which is a pretty difficult balance to pull off if you think about it. Frank and I talked about this, along with his writing processes, tips for keeping morale high on difficult sets, as well as the benefits of shooting your movie in upstate New York. All of this and so much more on today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now, please give it up for writer-director Frank Sabatella. Big, big fan of The Shed, and uh, really, it felt, what I really liked about it is it felt like familiar territory in a way, but it also, like comforting, small town, something supernatural happens, but it did, it did, it, I felt like it took the, the vampire genre in a different, new, authentic direction, you know, putting your own spin on it. That's what I was hoping to do, I mean, that's what I was going for, so it's really cool to hear you, that you picked that up, you know? Awesome. Yeah. And I feel like some of the most effective horror has actual deeper messages behind it as opposed to being horror for the sake of horror as much as we love, you know, big gore fests where there's actual social commentary. It it just cuts way deeper. And uh, from what I understand, there's a lot of you were channeling a lot of elements of, you know, real social issues like bullying and school shootings and stuff like that. Could you talk about how those found their way into the soul of the movie? Yeah. Um getting writing the movie was a long process i was like working on that script for a couple of years and as you're writing the 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 themes start to like emerge you yeah. know what i mean like the earlier drafts didn't really necessarily revolve around the the bullying and the school shooting that that just sort of that sort of started playing itself to the front after like i think it was like the third or fourth draft and then um, when Peter Block came on, my producer, he was like, I love, I love these elements. Why don't we amp that up? And I was like, all right, cool. So we started amping up those elements and other elements started falling away a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I think that the adding that sort of commentary, if you want to call it that, uh, really made it a more effective story. I think it's what makes it a little more interesting if I say so myself, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's funny how those, it sounds like you didn't approach the movie specifically with those themes in, in mind, but they just kind of naturally found themselves in the screenplay as you started developing it, or they, the themes emerged, you know, as you wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that common as a writer that you have to just keep writing and then let the material reveal itself? The way I write, I wish I could be one of those like writer filmmakers that like they, they write a script and it's great. And then they do like one or two polishes and they're like, boom, let's make a movie. I like agonize over writing for a long time. So I'll write a draft and I'll, I'll know that that's not going to be anywhere near the final draft. I just know that. Yeah. I always like when I talk to people about writing, I, I always call the first draft the Wild West because I'm like, anything goes get it all out, shoot them up. And then like second draft is like, there's a new sheriff in town <laughs> and the sheriff's like, all right, this has got to go. You guys can stay, but you got to go. And 
starts getting everything in line. And I think through that process of repeatedly going over it and working it, I think it's, I think it's equally a, a subconscious process and a conscious process where the, the themes start to come to the surface. Yeah. And, and that's certainly what happened with the shed where I think I set out just to kind of write like a cool vampire stuck in a shed story, which would be cool and very horror in and of itself. And then you're sort of, uh, I was working on the angle of neglect with these sort of neglected teenagers. Uh, a big in- influence for me was River's Edge, the movie mm-hmm. River's Edge. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but um, it's worth checking out. Um, but it's about, it, it revolves around those elements of neglect. And that's where I was angling at. But then it started becoming, well, what is the result of these kinds of neglect? And how does neglect play itself out in the various characters we see in the film? And that's when the bullying stuff started to emerge. And then the eventual school shooter stuff and kind of took its own course, you know? Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And from what I I understand, you're a big Stephen King fan. Did did you, I'm sure you've read on writing, right? I've read on writing, yes. Yeah. Do you have any sort of daily minimum word count that you try to hit as far as writing either every day or during certain periods? No, I don't have a word count. What I do, what I, what my personal rule had always been was no matter what, spend two two hours a day in the process of writing. Um, so I started like disciplining myself to be like, all right, no matter what, I'm going to sit at my desk with the intention of writing for two hours, at least some of those days in that two hours, I wrote zero words, but I'm sitting there thinking and trying to get something. And some of those days, those two hours can turn into like an eight hour writing day and you like plow through like a million pages, or you might just do like five pages in a bunch of hours, but you're you're just focused on the craft of writing. So for me, it just became important to create a discipline, you know, and I think it'll be different for every person. Some, some people might be like, yeah, I want to write a thousand words today. Some people might be like, Oh, that's a good idea. I, I can dedicate an hour to writing a day. And I think once you, once you just decide I'm going to, I'm going to do this every day or try to do it every day, you create that habit. And then, like I just said, you might do nothing in that hour, but at least you're kind of thinking, of writing mm-hmm. or you might get a ton of shit done and it goes into like four and five hours or, or more. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of how I get things done. Yeah. I think it's so important to have some sort of tangible sense of what you want to accomplish on a daily basis in terms of writing, whether it's a word count or whether it's a, it's a, it's a length of time. I've still been trying to figure out my own writing process. I try, I try to do a thousand words, but then sometimes it forces you to rush and just vomit out words. And you don't know, sometimes you do it though. Like you said, when you're kind of mining for a vein and you hit an artery and just stuff starts to flow, it's, you know, it's different every time, but it's a good feeling when that happens. This, this past weekend, I actively spent the weekend avoiding writing at all costs. Oh, really? <laughs> I, like, I like went into Saturday morning and I was just, I, I'm working on something new and I'm stressing about it. The earliest phases for me are always the most stressful. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? Disregard it for the next two days and deal with it during the week. And, and I did. And I think that was for the better. It cleared up my mind and then it got me excited again instead of feeling dreadful. There's always a little dread. There's always that feeling of dread, but you got to like, sometimes the dread wins and sometimes your excitement wins. So it's a, it's a juggling act. Yeah. I feel like if you overexhaust those writing muscles on a daily basis and you really just don't look forward to it, then it, I do think regardless of the importance of discipline, it probably, it is important to take breaks. I find anyway, and you just come back so much more refreshed and excited to be sitting down and then the ideas start, you know, popping. I know like uh, a lot of writers and filmmakers and artists and 
creative people in general are very into like hustle, 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 right. do, do, do. I only 50% believe in that because I equally believe in chill out, rest and open up your mind. Because mm-hmm. if you're just constantly on the go, you're going to burn yourself out. You're not going to be excited. And then you're being critical of everything that you're doing or not doing. And it just become it. For me, that is what's not fun about it. Right. I'd rather if I get to a point where I'm like, all right, I know I'm stuck on these things. I'm just going to chill out for a day or two. I'm going to watch some movies, read some books, do whatever I want to do. And I know the creativity. Um, I know that I'm a person that finishes screenplays, so I don't have to beat myself up over it. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, there's something about that inner confidence of knowing that you'll finish it. Yeah. It might take me a year, but I'll finish it. Right. You know? Yeah, I think that's so important for sure because it's a lot of people approach writing with dread. But uh, I find that Jerry Seinfeld tip works where you have an oversized calendar and every day you write, you draw an X. And then you just enjoy seeing the the, the links of X's across your calendar. Little things, man. They, they make a difference though for sure. No, it really, it really does. You know, I have a, I have a big uh, cork bulletin board. And when I start a project, that, that thing is empty, right? When I'm starting to write something new. And in my earliest phases of the project, any idea that comes into my head, I'll write on a big white uh, index card and I'll stick it on the board and I'll keep doing that. And then next thing you know, I'll just have a ton of white index cards and I'm like, all right, cool. And those are all the broad stroke ideas. Mm -hmm. And then I start forming sort of a story concept and I'll write that out. And then I'll get into like, how can I describe the story in like three sentences? Then once I do that, I could start making like, beats which i'll also put on the board mm-hmm. and it just feels good to have a visual like you're saying like see all those x's or whatever like i feel good when i'm looking up at my board and there's like okay cool there's index cards there whether they're in order or whatever they are at least i know there's ideas that are coming and i can see that i'm having ideas and it comforts me oh that's cool if that makes sense yeah it does i do something similar digitally though i put stuff into evernote but the def it, it's a great way to just keep track of stuff at all times, you know, in your phone. But it goes into a digital vortex, which is the problem. Whereas when you have something tangible that you can see every day, it reminds yeah. you. Oh, yeah. Um, I was just saying that I basically, just for me, it just works better on paper. I always write on paper. I don't, I don't really do anything digital until I'm actually writing the script when I need to, like, work in final draft. Everything else I do uh, in pen. Yeah. Yeah, I, f- I find it so much more helpful to be able to actually have pieces of paper and shuffle things around, particularly when you're dealing with a ton of disparate ideas. Like, I'm sure when you're coming up with a script, you have images that you want to use and, you know, little details, and you got to be able to pick things up and shuffle them around to see how they all fit together. For sure. That's just what works for me. Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-DVD.com. 
Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Rue Morgue Magazine. Subscribe to Rue Morgue for award-winning insight into the world and culture of horror. From books, movies, and comics to music, collectibles, and classics. Featuring the latest film, book, comic book, music, game, toy releases, and more delivered to your door. Guillermo del Toro called it the best damn magazine in the genre. Subscribe to Rue Morgue, the horror magazine of the 21st century by visiting www.rue-morgue.com. So you guys shot the shed in uh, in Syracuse, right? Yep. How did you guys land on Syracuse as a place to shoot? Well, okay, so the I'm from New York, and the rest of the production was from L.A. The producers were from L.A., most of the actors, et cetera. Um, and when I was, like, sort of describing the environment, I was like, look, there's nowhere, nothing in L.A. looks that way. They wanted to shoot in L.A. And I was like, we're not going to find the right locations after I started sending them vision boards and stuff. And um, I said, you know, we got to go to New York. Plus, there's, like, some great tax incentives in New York. So once I was able to convince them that we were going to be shooting in upstate New York, we found out that central New York has like these additional tax programs and tax incentives to get filmmakers up there. Mm. Um, and once the producers started looking into that, it became very interesting to them. And then we had, uh, we brought on, uh, an associate producer to help us deal with all the Syracuse stuff. Gotcha. So that's pretty much how it happened. You know? And it sounds like it was a pretty pleasant experience filming, And I've heard in the past from other filmmakers that filming in small towns where there's not a lot of filmmaking activity is an excellent experience because everybody in the town is so interested and excited by the movie and are unbelievably helpful and people volunteer their businesses and their homes and it's easy to find extras and it's just like this fun communal experience. Is that, was that the experience with making the shed? Yeah, we, we, it mostly was, but oddly enough, you say th- there was another production shooting in town while we were there. Oh, a, a much bigger production than ours. I'm not going to say what it was. It wasn't a horror film, and uh, they were they were not exactly leaving a good impression with the locals. Oh, um, so it, it at first people were like skeptical of us, and then once they started dealing with it, they were like, "Oh, you guys are so much cooler than <laughs> those guys." And, you know, we, we were just like, yeah, it was just weird. They were, they were leaving a bad reputation around. So anywhere we went, they were like, Oh, are you with that other production? We were like, no, 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 no. We're, we're the horror movie. We're cool. We're the cool guys. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that's indie filmmakers versus big Hollywood filmmakers. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, they, they definitely had a much bigger budget and they had like stars quote unquote. Um, and they just had, poor attitudes and you know and it just was i don't know people are dicks what can yeah I tell you? <laughs> that's how that works but but our our overall experience with people was like really cool because like even we were looking for locations like that the house that we shot at uh for for the majority of the movie um i was just an abandoned house we happened to drive by while we were looking at other houses that oh, were wow. available yeah and, and we were like yo let's go in there we we pulled in and I was like, this is perfect. This is the house. It was like laid out. The way that house was laid out from the outside and the inside was almost literal to what I wrote in the script. And I had no idea that a house with such a layout would exist. Whoa. And it, it just was like this, uh, this mystical moment. Like, <laughs> like a big thing that plays into the script is how they have a back door 
out of the kitchen that goes down stone steps into the yard. And this house had that. And I was like, I can't believe this house really Holy has shit. that. And I don't know. Yeah, it was just wild. And we had to like dig up the tax records and find out who actually owned the property. And it was just really cool. They were like, oh, that's so cool. And, you know, obviously we worked out a payment plan with them and everything. Um, but any, any house that we went to look at or any location that we went to look at, everybody was just so chill. You that's know, great. it was just really cool about it. Yeah. We're in New York and LA. Like, nobody gives a shit if you're shooting. No. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. In either city, shooting in New York City or LA, from everything I understand, it's, it's usually terrible to, to shoot there. Yeah, uh, New York's got a lot of production all over it. I, I wouldn't say it's terrible. It's just that it's a super busy city. Right. And there's productions everywhere. Like, if you walk through New York City, you're going to walk past, like, you know, on any given day when there's not a pandemic, you're going to walk <laughs> past, like, probably two or three productions wherever you're going. Yeah. You're just going to see something being shot, whether it's an indie, a television show, a big budget movie. Like, it's just all over. So people are over it. Yeah, easily. I live in the city too. I see them all the time. You can't go three blocks without hot set signs. So it was uh, really always like seeing the use of practical effects in movies. And you guys had some really great creature effects and overall practical effects. How did you approach the the creature design? I'm always curious how, particularly with vampires. Um, I just, for me, um, I wanted the vampires to be scary and I wanted them to be like, organic was the word I kept mm. using. Like I didn't want to, didn't want to overly stylize them. And I wanted to take the vampire aspect as if it's sort of a progressing disease. So when you first become a vampire, you're mostly yourself, but you're kind of pale, but you have the teeth and you have the, the scary eyes. But as it progresses, you start to distort and alter and you, you get a sense of that if you're watching the film when, if you look at uh, Frank Whaley's character, uh, Bane, the vampire Bane, in the earlier scenes versus the later scenes, he looks much more vampy, if right. you will. You know what I mean? Like he starts getting the like, the head stuff. I don't even know what you call that. Like yeah, the, yeah. He the starts getting the, um, the Jerry Dandridge look. <laughs> hey, yeah, exactly. Um, and I, it's funny you say Jerry Dandridge because I was, you know, I was very influenced by Fright Night in terms of some of the look and the tone. Um, so that was just it. When I was talking to the effects artist, um, that's what we talked about. And we were just like, yeah, let's, let's do it like that. A little Lost Boys S as well, you know? Yeah, no, they looked great and they felt familiar, but they, they, but different, if that makes sense. It felt kind of like, you know, there's vampire movies that we all loved and grew up on, but you know, with, with your own spin on it as well. I just wanted them to be scary. I was like, no matter what, I'm like, I just want them to be like vicious vampires. I don't want them to be sexy and cool and slick. I just want like nasty monsters. Yeah. You, know? you didn't want them to sparkle is what you're saying? <laughs> Not want them to sparkle. <laughs> <laughs> so how did Peter Block get involved with this movie? Um, it's a, it's, I guess it's kind of an interesting story. Um, when I first, uh, when I first started writing the screenplay, um, I was looking for producers, obviously, and I didn't know Peter at all, but I had my previous film, Blood Knight, was released by Lionsgate, and Peter was an executive at Lionsgate at the time. Um, and you would think that would be our connection, but it was not. Peter had then left Lionsgate and went on to form a bigger boat, and it just so happened that a person that I knew that did the IT work for Peter's company 
was a friend of mine and he told Peter that I did a film for Lionsgate and that we should talk. And that's how I got involved with Peter. And when I sent Peter the script, uh, he liked it. That's great. And then it took, I think, four years before he made it. Oh, wow. Decided to, like officially get on board and make it. So it's a long process, you know, for those aspiring filmmakers listening out there. Between, you know, making a deal and making the actual film, it can be a matter of years. Well, we didn't. So it can be. So for me, it's funny because my first film, it wasn't a long process at all. It was actually really quick that it, that it was like frighteningly quick. But with this, Peter, he was into the script, but I think he was just super busy. And I think he didn't like know he wanted to do that kind of a smaller indie project at the time. Um, and we just kept in touch for the next few years as I continued to refine the script and try to work with other producers. And I just kept running into walls. Like somebody would be interested, then they wouldn't be interested, then something else would come along. And then uh, then Peter called me and said, hey, uh, I hope you didn't make that film yet. I think we should talk. Cool. And once, once we had that conversation and we decided that we were going to work together on it, on, on another draft, and go from there, it actually went pretty quick. Oh, wow. Cool. Not very quick. But I say me and Peter spent a couple more months writing, and then I'd say less than a year later we were shooting. Oh, nice. Okay. Cool. But what I would say to aspiring filmmakers is don't get discouraged if you're like trying to get a script made and after six months it's not made because you you listen to like some of the biggest filmmakers now and they're still, you know, they're like, oh, it took me three years to get this to get this made. It took me three years to get a studio behind it or to get financing. Like it's you're you're in for the long haul in my in my experience for sure. And I think uh Anyone that thinks it's going to happen super fast is going to be very disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. What are the, what's that? It's a long process or it can be a long process. Yeah. Well, if we could shift gears and talk about your first movie, what, um, what's kind of your story behind how you were able to break in when it came to making blood night, you said it happened pretty fast. And so how did, yeah. how did that movie get made and how did you break into the system? So it was, it was a similar story where I had, I was writing another script and I was trying to get that made and I was meeting people and nobody was really, I would say they weren't very serious. People would be like, Oh, I'm very interested. And then it would kind of fizzle. And that was happening to me over and over again. Yeah. And I was introduced to these guys who were not filmmakers at all. They ran a, like some kind of like internet tech company or something like that. And those internet tech companies like make fast money sometimes like somebody like acquired a portion of their company. I don't know, something happened and they were suddenly like flooded with money and they wanted to, they wanted to invest a portion of it into recording albums and making films. Hmm. And when I met them, they were very interested in doing a horror film and I pitched them the idea that I was working on at the time and they, they liked it, but they didn't love it but I think that they, they liked me and my approach to things. And then we started talking about the other project, Blood Knight, and they said they wanted to do something very slasher, very throwback. And I was like, that's like my jam. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I, when I pitched them the concept for Blood Knight, they really got behind that one and uh, they got the financing together and we maybe about six, seven months later we were shooting it, which was great. 
Oh, wow. And then Lionsgate picked it up after that. Lionsgate picked it up after that, right. Nice. And you've done a number of shorts as well. And filmmakers have different feelings about shorts. Some say they're important, while others say don't waste your time. But I've spoken to a number of directors who swear by the importance of making shorts. What, what's been your experience with, uh, with, with making shorts? Um, I personally like shorts, and I think if you're... I think if you're a director and you're trying to become a better director, I think shorts are a valuable thing to do. Um, I think when people say there's no point in doing shorts, they feel that's because you can't really sell them or something like that. Right. But I think the value of doing short films is developing your style and aesthetic as a director, learning the things that you like, learning what works, what doesn't work, learning how to work with a crew. It's very hard to... You know, one feature film is going to take up probably a year to a year and a half of your life, right? So you don't have the opportunity to practice making feature films. The only thing you can do is make short films, and that helps you hone your craft. So I think that's why short films are cool. I like them, and I may not do another one anytime soon, but for me, they were valuable when I was doing them. And would you typically... When people want to make shorts and they're trying to figure out how to finance them, is it a matter of just maxing out the old credit card? Or, or have you find that, found that there are either companies or producers who will help you produce shorts? Or are you just on your own when it comes to financing a short? In, in my experience, you're mostly on your own. But I did a bunch of uh, – I did Kickstarters back in the day when I did those short films. Oh, cool. I did Kickstarter campaigns, and they were pretty successful for us. Um I think your other best bet, you know, some of the filmmakers that I have worked with that also have done some shorts, I think your best bet is doing as much as you can for zero dollars, meaning if your friend has a camera, see if he'll, you know, hey, man, you want to shoot something for two days for me or whatever it is, like figure out a way to get it done for as little as possible Um, or, or search for an investor. But I've. I've never had experience finding an investor in a short film. Yeah. Yeah. I figured they're hard. If you have like a wealthy aunt Gertie or something that is (laughs) throw some cash your way, you know, I I guess that's another option. But for me, I did Kickstarters and even, even with the Kickstarter money, we just called in as many favors as possible from whoever we could, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you have a photography background as well. That's correct. Yeah. So has the, how has that contributed to your ability as a director? Uh, I have great communication with uh, my cinematographers, my DPs. Yeah. Um, I understand the visual language very well. Um, so I know I'm very, I know what one lens does versus another, things like that. Like I just understand how life through a lens looks as a photographer and how storytelling works in, in, in a frame, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I've, and I think visually when I write and when I prepare a project. So I, I assume that the photography, the visual language of photography is helpful when you're making a movie because it's a visual medium. And then also the technical language of photography is helpful when you're communicating with your director of photography on set. Yeah, it feels like it's something that more directors should do, you know, should take up just learning photography. Because I had a conversation with Carter Smith, and he said something similar, because he has a photography background and basically said, it taught me everything about directing, because I had to learn 
as you just touched on, you have to learn how to tell an entire story in a single frame. And if you can do that, I mean, imagine what you could do with 30 frames per second throughout the course of a feature-length film. I mean, it's, it seems like it's, it's great training for being a visual storyteller. For sure. I mean, uh, absolutely. Like, any, any time I'm doing a project, I end up, like, going out and, like, if I'm location scouting, I bring my cameras with me, not for the purpose of just taking location photos, but for looking at shots through various lenses before I even have a person there to do it with, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. just, it's a very useful tool and it's good to, I, I think, I think if you have a strong DP and maybe you're not such a strong director, um, a strong DP can pull you through, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, but if you don't have a very strong DP and you're, but I don't. I don't want to say not strong director. I mean, maybe maybe it's your first film or your first feature or whatever, and you don't have that full breadth of experience. Um, it's good if you do have that sort of visual toolkit, so that you sort of you and your DP can function together to to create your vision. That's what it comes down to. The director needs to execute the vision. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah, and understanding how specific lenses do specific, different things. Visually, it's, it sounds like that's it's it's such an important part of the puzzle, right? And knowing the difference between you know just things like how how wide open the aperture is on a lens can affect what your shot looks like, and then you have to know how much light do we need or this that and the other thing. Which really that's your your director of photography's job, but I just I'm very hands on with those aspects of the production. So any anything in a film is very much still from me. Yeah. You know yeah, and there's some very iconic looking shots in the shed. Like the actual shed itself looked super iconic, like in an Evil Dead sense. It felt like a mini Evil Dead <laughs> cabin. <laughs> That's awesome. We uh, we built that. That wasn't there. Yeah, I had a feeling you guys built it because yeah, it, it was just too cool and too noticeable looking. Yeah, it was very iconic looking. Thanks. So you kind of touched on this before, but I, I'll usually ask directors if, I mean, obviously becoming a director and getting a feature is is usually a long and arduous process. And a lot of people, when they go through it, they're faced with a lot of trials and tribulations, and a lot of people inevitably will give up. But I feel like the difference is the ones that push through those difficult times. So that being said, was there ever a kind of dark night of the soul where you were really reconsidering that you whether or not you wanted to do this with your life. And was there something in particular that pulled you through to the other side? I think, um, I've had many dark nights of the soul. Um, I think the problem or the solution, however you want to look at it for me personally, um, I've never had like a backup plan. So even at my darkest moments of being like, why is this not working out for me or whatever these, you know, whatever the thoughts you have are, it never occurred to me to do something else because I'm also, it, this is like what I do best and what I'm the happiest at. So it, I, I just, the, the alternative was never like an easy thing for me. Cause I, cause then I'd be like, well, what would I do instead? And how could I be happy with my life if I was doing something else? And I've never come up with that solution and I've never had a backup plan so I'm sort of, you know, on a tightrope without a without a net in a way. And I guess that sort of that the fear of not succeeding was always greater than, um, you know, I was always too afraid to fail at this 
to consider another possibility. So I think my fear of failure and probably a lot of stubbornness has just driven me to keep doing this until I reach the level of success that I'm aspiring to, I guess. Yeah. If that's a good answer for the question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've heard from multiple people. It's a matter of not having a safety net, not having something to fall back on, you know, and that forces you to, to make sure the film is a success in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's not like, uh, you know, sometimes I, I wish I had a backup plan, I guess, because even, even when you successfully execute a film and everything, you're still not, you know, you're not out of the woods, so to speak. It's like, I just feel like as soon as you finish a film, you're like, all right, now I have to do this again. Right. You know, I, I finished the shed. It came out this year and it's, it's doing really well. And I'm like, okay, cool. Now I have to do this again with my next project. And it's like, you're, you're constantly starting over again. Right. You know I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And one thing about the shed that I noticed is I was always aware of it when it came out. It's kind of weird. I don't remember where I first heard of it, but I just remember having a general sense of awareness about it. Um, I don't know if it's because I write for Dread Central or just I'm big in the horror community, but there's like a few movies every year that you just are that are on your radar. Like for me this year, it was um, Daniel isn't real because everybody was just talking about that. I felt like The Shed last year was one of those movies that was just kind of in my oh I got to see this. Was there any approach to marketing that you guys had that was particularly effective? Because I just remember this movie being in the general conversation for a while. Or you know it could be just because good stuff rises to the top. But was there anything you guys did marketing wise that was notable? In, in all honesty, no. I mean, we, and in fact, that's kind of one of the things that I was annoyed with at first was I was like, we're not going to do anything like cool marketing. Like we, we entered it into a bunch of festivals. It got into some really cool festivals. Um, and I just did a little bit of like reaching out to people that I knew just to be like, Hey, do you want to write something about the film? We have a poster, but we didn't do anything special. And thankfully when it got into some of these festivals, people just started talking about it somehow, which was, which was awesome. You know, right. we didn't do anything out of the ordinary PR and marketing wise. We had, you know, a, a, every dollar that was in that production went on screen. There was very little money left over for PR and stuff like that. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like that's how it has to be. That's how it has to be. <laughs> Although PR yeah, marketing so, is still important, but I mean, I would love it if my next film had like, uh, like even some marketing budget, you know, right. But, uh, fortunately the, the horror community kind of seemed to be into the idea. They got into the poster and I guess, you know, you hear that there are cool people involved. Like when you have Peter block involved in a project that helps cause he's done tons of great horror movies. Yeah. When you have Corey, ne- Corey Neal did the hatchet franchise and a bunch of other cool movies. So I guess having those guys attached and, um, just getting the word out organically. Uh, it just, people heard about it, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, somehow it just was always in my initial sphere of awareness around the time it came out. I feel like that's part of the horror community though, too, is like good stuff. They will talk about, they will support, you know, for sure. Yeah. So um, when it comes to filmmaking and writing and directing, there's a lot of books on the topic, a lot of which have been written by people who haven't actually done it. So there's a whole, it's, there's a lot of bullshit in that market. But um, were there any resources or f- books on filmmaking or creativity or, um, you know, the business of, of filmmaking that were particularly helpful for you? Uh, I've never read any on the business of filmmaking. Maybe I should. That might actually be helpful. Um, I'd say a few books. Along the way, I, I've read so many different screenwriting books. Um, 
I read the um, the Sid Field screenplay, which is which is great, but it's kind of dry reading. I've read all the Save the Cat books, which I think are really good for for learning about screenwriting structure in yeah. a sort of fast, fun way, if that makes sense. Yep. Um, on writing, as you mentioned before, such is a great, great one. one. Um, when I was in film school, um, there was a book I read, uh, film directing shot by shot. I found that pretty helpful in terms of sort of bridging the the technical gap, I guess you could say, between being a director with like a visual idea in your mind and then how to translate that into a production. I'm trying to think what else. Those are the ones that come to the to the top of my mind. Um, I think the best the best teacher is doing being on set though or you know get on set or do a short um don't get caught up in too many books because like you said a lot of them are written by people that haven't made films yeah um which not to put them down in any way um but i think i learned the most just by working not only directing my own films but working with other directors and seeing how directors do things i learned a lot from working with bad directors actually believe it or not Really? Yeah. When you work with a bad director, it's very obvious what they're doing that is bad and why it's bad. Mm. And for me, working with, you know, in very, I've worked like every position on a film just in my career as a filmmaker. I've pretty much done every job you can do just about. And so I've worked with a lot of people in a lot of productions. And when you are working with a bad director i don't want to say a bad director let's say an ineffective director maybe that's a better yeah better term um or an unskilled director let's say that (laughs) right um you you really see what they're doing and why it's not working and it stands out to you or at least it stood out to me a lot when you're working with very good directors you do see what they're doing and how it's being effective, but it's sort of less obvious in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Um, Cause they make it look it's like it's so natural. Yeah. Like I think, I think a good director sort of flows and there's less conflict or, or, a, or a more skilled director knows how to handle the conflicts that the various conflicts that inevitably are definitely going to come up in any production. Yeah. And, when you're working with a good director, especially if you're just like a crew guy, which I was back in the day, uh, you don't see so much how the conflicts are resolved or how they affected this, that, and the other thing. You just kind of know they're taken care of and the production goes on. Right. When you're working with a bad director, or rather, I'm sorry, unskilled director, you really see, oh, this was the problem. This person doesn't know how to solve it. It's becoming that. And then the next thing you know, the shooting day is gone and you just learn these things. Yeah. That's, that's how I felt. So working with lousy directors, unskilled directors definitely taught me better ways to deal with actors, better ways to deal with, uh, crew personnel and things like that. Um, but I think wherever you can, you should try to work with skilled directors as well. You'll pick up a lot there too. I'm just speaking to, to my personal experience. Well, I feel like you touched on an important subject when it comes to directing, and that's resolving or dealing with conflicts. Were there, throughout the course of you observing both unskilled as well as skilled directors, were there any specific takeaways that you got in terms of conflict resolution and how to deal with the, the conflicts that inevitably will arise on a film set? Yeah, I think, like, most important rule number one in, in all of life, not just directing, don't be a dick. That's only <laughs> going to make it worse. 
Like, <laughs> you know, try to, I, I think it helps if you can resolve things without screaming and yelling. And of course, and I'm guilty of this myself. I'm sure there are plenty of times on set when I ended up yelling at somebody or, or flipping out over something. But I would say 90% of the time I keep my cool unless something gets like completely out of control. So yeah. keeping your cool and not being a dick is like the most important thing. Um, second, I think it's important to, if you can understand the nature of the problem and rather than having people just telling you what the problem is, I have found like when a department head brings me an issue, usually my response to them is, okay, what is the solution? Rather than, you know, I sort of want to, I want to let them feel like they're going to be part of the solution because because somebody will come up to you and be like, hey, you know, all the power's out. We can't get your lights up. And I'm like, all right, well, what's the solution? Rather than me being like, well, you better get that generator going and you better do this. And like, you know what I mean? Yeah. When you, when you sort of take a solution approach and then you put the onus to them where they're like, well, okay, maybe we can try this. And then you're like, okay, great. That's, that's awesome. That sort of takes the pain out of conflict. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, totally. And then I think the other most important thing is make sure you say thank you to people. Make sure like if a problem does come up and then it's solved, make sure you thank people for solving the problem. Because chances are as a director, you're not the one that's solving the problem. When all the lights go out, you're not the guy that's over there fixing the generator or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. So just make sure you, you thank the people that do fix the problem or solve the problem or help solve the problem. Or make sure you're constantly thanking your crew for you know working that extra three hours at the end of the day going into overtime and still being on time the following day you know what i mean i think it's very important as a director to consistently express your gratitude um to the people that are helping you make the movie yeah yeah i think that's huge yeah cool well frank this is a real pleasure thank you so much no problem nick thank you thank any parting wisdom for those aspiring filmmakers out there parting wisdom i just don't get discouraged. Whatever you're, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And if you're, if you're writing and you're struggling to write, just finish the script. However you have to finish it because just finishing the script is more than a majority of what writers do. Most writers don't even finish. Yeah. And like we said earlier, if you have the opportunity to direct a short cause you can't get a feature done, then do it. Get behind the camera. You want to be behind the camera, get behind the camera. Great. Yeah. Great. Thank you again, Frank. All right, you got it, Nick. All right, really dug that conversation and enjoyed talking to Frank a lot. So here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Frank Sabatella. Number one, approach your writing in phases. It's overwhelming for most writers to sit down and look at that blank page while that deadly cocktail of perfectionism, analysis paralysis, and overall resistance sabotages your effort. It's important to remember what Hemingway said, which is the first draft of anything is shit. With this in mind, it's important to understand and embrace the different phases that your screenplay will inevitably have to go through to get finished. Frank calls the first draft of a screenplay the Wild West phase because anything goes and he lets the ideas fly freely. There's something very liberating about this approach. You shouldn't be overly critical about your first draft because it's exploratory. 
So approach your first draft with this Wild West mentality. Even if 75% of it sucks, that 25% could be all you need to lay the foundation of a great second draft. Frank then went on to say that as you write through these drafts, the deeper themes of the movie will naturally reveal themselves to you. So don't be discouraged if you don't have it all figured out when you sit down to write, because it's largely a process of discovery. Which brings me to my next point. Number two, write regardless of output. Frank writes for about two hours a day, but he notes that he may not necessarily put down words during this time. Instead, the sheer act of sitting down to think through his story, plot, and script details are enough for him to consider it a productive day. The words aren't always going to come, but what's important is that you show up and put the work in and make yourself available to the muse. Even if you don't nail your word count, you can still take your screenplay further by spending focused time thinking about it because this is what helps the ideas gel. Number three, take breaks. As important as it is to have a consistent and disciplined writing practice, sometimes your mind needs a break. It's very easy to get swept up in hustle culture and constantly force yourself to put out pages, but this can sometimes exhaust your creative resources. If you're feeling burned out, you may need to replenish yourself by watching movies, relaxing, reading books, etc. You might need a dose of inspiration or you may simply need a rest. So try this and pay attention to how refreshed you feel the next time you sit down to write. Number four, visualize your progress. Frank has a bulletin board where he collects ideas and broad strokes that he then narrows down into beats and scenes. Having a tangible representation of the project helps keep him on track and encourages him to push further because he can visualize his progress. As the saying goes, out of sight, out of mind. In this tech-driven era, it's so easy for things to disappear into the digital void, but sometimes tangibility and visibility are very important for creators, if only for emotional reasons. It may seem like a little thing, but anything in your environment that encourages you to finish your project is very important. Having a way to see tangible progress outside of a computer is definitely something worth trying. Anyway, guys, thanks as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Horror Show.